I think that buildings should should possess a variety of spaces and 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 should be designed to encourage uh, meaningful human to human engagement, uh, human to the natural world engagement, and and even spaces for uh, self-reflection. Trey Trahan, founder of Trahan Architects, human connection, ecology, and unvarnished beauty encompass the core ethos of his work, which primarily focuses on creating cultural architectural spaces. With roots in New Orleans and their global perspective based in New York, they have risen to the rank of number one design firm by Architect 50, an official publication of the American Institute of Architects. He leads his firm with the conviction of bringing humility and awareness into a mindful design process to create authentic spaces that elevate our lives and the human experience. His firm is known for projects like the Holy Rosary Church Complex, Saint-Jean-Vianney, Moody Pavilions, Coca-Cola Stage at the Alliance Theatre, as well as the Louisiana State Museum and Sports Hall of Fame, and the Mercedes-Benz Superdome renovation post-Katrina just to name a few. He's also known for his poetic approach and thorough consideration of every aspect of his projects. He views them as part of the natural ecosystem, including the soil. Soil is the repository for all living organic matter, and for Trey, our buildings should not be separate from it, but constructed in harmony. And well-constructed spaces foster human connection, both ephemeral and lasting, and it should be no different between architecture and the natural world. This is Alexandra Siebenthal, and today I got to connect with Trey to hear his ideas on the importance of creating sacred spaces devoid of clutter that make way for that human connection, his definition of beauty, and the potential regeneration holds as he presents a different side of that coin. His primary focus is creating lasting, impactful cultural spaces with the aim to look at the periphery examining how architecture builds connections between humans and the environment in ways we may have not considered. So, hi everyone. I'm so excited to be here speaking with Trey Trahan. Is it Trahan? Am I saying it correctly? Well, it's interesting. In, in, in South Louisiana, where the French people live, mm-hmm. it's Trahan. But I've been okay. referred to as Trahan um, outside of that part of Acadia Parish. Yeah. So Trahan or Trahan, whatever. Um, Trahan. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A, a, a quick story and then we'll move on. I promise. Yeah. So, so, so this, so this, this elderly consultant came to the office one day and we met and um, he gave us advice about a project type. And as he's walking out, Alex, he's walking out similar to um, a, an actor by the name of George Burns in, um, in yeah, in in the movie Oh God, I think that was his name, and he was kind of shuffling. And as he walks out, he says, "Trahan is music, Trahan is not," and it just kind of hit hit me deep within because he was suggesting that people had um, were pronouncing my name incorrectly and that it fell dull and flat and didn't have that kind of cultural richness to it. So anyway, whichever you prefer. No, no, I, I appreciate that, the background so much. So I will try it with Trahan. 
And yes. I, I feel like Ooh. I sound a bit funny. Sounds much more beautiful <laughs> coming from you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> my uh, French uh, studies. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, so founder of the award-winning Traham Architects. Um, and I, I think we have a pretty interesting conversation lined up. So, Trey, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Alex. It's it's a privilege to be with you today. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. So, Trey, I, I wanted to just kind of start from the beginning. Um, tell me or tell us about your background, where you grew up, how you got your start in architecture. And, you know, I'd love to hear also how your upbringing influenced you. Yeah. So I grew up. Um, one of four kids. I was the second. My, my father's French. My mother's Czechoslovakian. Um, and I grew up in a very rural and uh, small town of Crowley, Louisiana. Um, uh, the, the town professes to be the rice capital of the world, which is somewhat suspect, but it is a beautiful place, kind of um, they refer to it as the Acadiana Prairie because it was the French that left France, obviously, and moved to Nova Scotia and then moved southward to Louisiana. And um, so it was a beautiful place to, to grow up, a real openness and honesty and a, a place with tremendous integrity, a place where, um, looking back, um, there were two basic crops. Uh, there were a lot of farmers. Um, people grew uh, rice and soybeans, and that was because the the clay content in the soil provided kind of a, a, a pan condition where you could flood the fields and grow rice. And so, um, yeah, I remember growing up um, along the bayou, uh, which is our kind of dirty stream, so to speak, as far as because of all the the sediments suspended in the in the water and and and. I made this connection years later as I was playing in the woods because my mother would would uh, introduce the idea of me getting out of the house with three sisters because of how disruptive I was. Um, I remember watching a crop duster, an open cockpit crop duster flying across the bayou because there was a farm on the other side and seeing that the pilot in the cockpit, but also seeing under the belly of the the small plane, this nozzle where um, I have to believe it was some type of horrific uh, pesticide. And as I said, it wasn't two years later where I made that connection of how bothersome that was that I was even potentially being sprayed by by that crop duster. Um, um, I remember years later speaking to my father about it and, and the discussion was, and this was at a time when the blackbirds were coming back. He spoke of how once we discontinued the use of, of these chemicals, that blackbirds returned in these kind of massive waves as they kind of danced throughout the, the sky. And um, yeah, so I think all those things, whether we're conscious of them or not, in time we make those connections. And um, yeah, and so I... I think that had a profound impact playing in the woods, so to speak, and building cabins and finding discarded or fallen trees. And yeah, and in the woods there, the swamps was the cypress trees, which had the cypress knees, which you connected intellectually that that tree root system would then emerge up and create this kind of small city, right? Um, this kind of pixelated place of cypress knees. Well, it's, it sounds idyllic. When I was, you know, researching you in uh, New Orleans, just sounds like a 
I don't know, out of a, a book to me or something. It's so poetic and, and lovely. So thanks for sharing that. And you brought up kind of the, the soil and the clay content. Um, and I know this is like a big, um, you know, topic you're eager to, to speak about. Why is soil such a focal point for you? Yeah. Well, I've always, even in school, struggled with how do we, with integrity, authenticate our work? Um, how do we, what is that search for? Um, well, I guess this is, I began thinking about it. I started at a certain point thinking about, because I have to edit things down in my mind, that it's really simple. That as architects, we're dealing with a material world, which is a measured world. And what I think of um, as an immaterial world, that's immeasurable. And so when I think that way, as opposed to a building in a context, it liberates my thinking to question an appropriate balance and hopefully a beautiful relationship that is not about dominating uh, a place, but something that has a rich and meaningful dialogue between natural systems and, and the seriousness of building of placing anything um, in a landscape on the planet. It shouldn't be taken lightly, right? It's, it's an awesome responsibility. And, and so my search, our firm's search has been, it has to be more than just adjacent buildings and materiality. There, it, there has to be more. And so as I began to think about and learn more about watersheds and realize that Louisiana, right, is at the end of a watershed that begins um, in multiple provinces in Canada and covers a large percentage of the U.S. from continental divide to continental divide, I think a lot about, wow, what are the different cultures, the indigenous people that occupy these places? What is the soil like? What are the seasonal aspects up north? Falling snow, the melting of the snow, that movement of precipitation through many tributaries to the Mississippi, all different soil types mixing together, each with different characteristics and some falling to the bottom of the river, some being suspended in, in the water and those participating in a process of depositing and scouring. And, and if, if you're ever interested, look up the Harold Fisk maps. They're beautiful maps that um, represent the ancient meanders of the Mississippi pre-levy. And it's amazing how dynamic this, 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 this river is and how it literally moved throughout the landscape um, and, and just really um, introduced different soil types. Um, and so, you know, then you begin to make connections, especially coming from Crowley of how do, how do we cultivate these soils? And, and, and what does that mean when we cultivate a place to, to food, cuisine? And of course you make connections to culture and then you realize that, wow, some soils are healthy and some soils aren't. And what does it mean to, to work on a site with 
healthy or unhealthy soils. And so it's all of these connections that I am just um, deeply moved by and interested in. It's that curiosity within. And how, how are they affecting who we are, our convictions, and, and how we contribute to others um, in important ways? I, I really, really love this metaphor that you're using with like the, you know, and, and I've seen it a lot I kind of lately, especially as we're kind of coming out of the pandemic and moving into like a whole new, let's say, era and, um, you know, hopefully not going back to the way things are. There's that same sort of regenerative quality that I also find, you know, with soil, it's literally where life comes from and where it ends, um, our, you know, source of sustenance and vitality, let's say, comes from really like food. Um, and I think it's super fascinating to apply this in terms of architecture um, and and also maybe the consciousness of and being mindful of that as a resource for how you're building architecture, if you will. Um, so maybe what what more more concretely, like how do you plan to use that in terms of um, you know building structures? Are you it's about just kind of surveying the, the ecology of the area and applying that, or um, is it actually physically using soil to, to create buildings? Yeah, I think it's both and others. Okay. And so the earliest structures in Louisiana by um, the indigenous people and then the, the early settlers in the uh, early 1700s uh, were buildings referred to as bousillage, which is clay, horsehair, and moss. And it's kind of a version of adobe, but... Um, and it's sometimes referred to as throwing the cat, which I find interesting because they would erect timbers and, and sometimes it was pot de terre, the post embedded in the, in the soil. And then there were slightly diagonal horizontal members and they would mix in the ground, clay, horsehair, and, and moss where the black inner thread was removed. And they would create these loaves of of bousillage and then stack it. And then it would hydrate. And what was beautiful about that is the hydration would leave a slight um, crevasse, a separation between the mud and the wooden member. And it was like a, a, an early form of outside air, right? Um, and so they were just beautiful. So there's there's that physical use. But, but I think um, soils are, are much more than that. Because when we think about them, we think about a healthy soil, uh, which with a certain density of organic matter um, has a level of nutrients in it. And those nutrients, uh, the fertility of that soil is passed on to plants that we eat, and that contributes to a degree of health. But healthy soil also um, results in uh, or can uh, a healthy economy, right? Um, and a healthy healthcare system. I mean, I think you can begin to extrapolate all of these uh, because it, you have to think about it in terms of, of cover crops, um, um, uh, rotation of crops. And, you know, then we begin to think about protection of topsoil. I, I think I once read that it takes a thousand years to build three centimeters of topsoil. And so, there's this precious layer that we build on. We almost encapsulate it recklessly, in my opinion, that is almost had this, almost has this, 
this sacredness to it because embodied in it is life and embodied in the soil, healthy soil, is so many different forms of life from beetles, bugs, and worms. And, and if, if we really want to, I think, live healthy lives, we care deeply about all forms of life. And it, and it doesn't mean at times some are going to privilege one form of life over other, others. But I, I think we have to be respectful of all forms of life. And so I think there are deeply meaningful connections um, between buildings, architecture, and, and, and soil. And, and, and I think that's, that will reveal itself more and more by the use of technology. I apologetically initially thought of, a, of technology and advancement separate from the natural world. But I'm a believer that the advancement of technology, if allocated properly, can contribute significantly to biodiversity, fighting climate change, and um, beautiful soils, right? Soils that contribute, um, that aren't experiencing runoff. You take, for example, Louisiana. We're losing a football field of, of, of land every one and a, to one and a half hours. And that's because we have levied the Mississippi River and the process of, of freshwater distribution and, um, uh, and sediment replacement has been lost. And so all of that has gone off of the continental shelf. And so what, what, what's happening is without the replacement of freshwater, the salt water is moving up. It is resulting in the degradation of flora and the loss of land. And so uh, once again, soil and land um, and its importance is imperative. Um, so how do you, maybe, how do you think this, I guess, plays into sustainability, especially with climate change, you know, and, and Louisiana in itself being kind of most vulnerable, you know, m when most people think of sustainable or green buildings, they think of the structure itself and is it, what, energy is it using and instead of the surrounding area as you're suggesting so what what sort of responsibility then like how how can architects apply that responsibility and um kind of build with that care yeah 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 i think that's a great question well you know i i think as we're experiencing some degree of global warming and and more and more natural um, events that are devastating to our communities, the cost is overwhelming, right? And and, we, and we've probably reached a point, if not, we'll reach a point shortly where we just can't afford to rebuild communities along the coast. And that's very unfortunate because there are a lot of rich cultures um, along many of our coastlines in the U.S. and internationally. And so I think that um, we can continue to build far away from the coast in sustainable ways. But but I think at a certain point, we're going to have to deal with the efforts of lobbying and oil and gas and these entities that we've all benefited from for many years. But I think we've we've reached a time where we have to say, look, we're, we're appreciative of your many contributions. But the truth is, is, is you contribute in many ways that are elevate the quality of our lives. But reciprocally, um, it's just not it's 
we can't tolerate it, right? We need to address this. And so I think we need to to confront reality and deal with the truth. Um, and I think that's where it begins, dealing with some of these issues along our coastlines. And, and what about in maybe a more urban context? How does soil form design or, or your building process there? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, for me, as, as I mentioned earlier, we tend to encapsulate all of this topsoil and earth. And it just seems like there's a, there's, we need to um, daylight our cities, so to speak, you know, um, return. I, I love, I love when we, we, we stumble upon um, a building that is no longer occupied. And, and even if it's concrete or brick or masonry or stone, it's amazing how the natural world begins to reclaim it. And, and we, we talk about integration of the natural world and the built world. I think that's the most powerful precedence, right? This abandoned building that um, has a plant growing out of a stair or through a skylight or through a window. And, and so I, that's kind of uh, the physical expression or relationship that I find most exciting. Um, maybe a process of building is building an, or, an armature and um, stopping before completion and allowing the natural world to to have a voice and and uh, gain some foothold and then respond again in completion of the building and 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 I think healthy soils would be integral to that because I think you would think not in terms of independent silos of the building conti- conditioned space and the outside world there would i think believe i think what would come about is what i find beautiful about new orleans there are degrees of outsidedness and that kind of gradient is what's powerful because depending on environmental conditions you get to find that place of comfort as opposed to internal external um and I think that's where meaningful human to human engagement happens in those kinds of spaces. Do you see nature as something to learn from more or mimic? Yeah, I, I think the least we can do is mimic, but I would hope that we would learn from it because it, you know, it does teach us everything we need to know about life and death, right? And, and it gives us life. And in a, of course, in New Orleans, um, the ceremony of funeral, um, especially in the African-American community, is beautiful. I mean, that processional aspect throughout the city. But also, our, our cemeteries are, are little built cities, right? Uh, people are buried above ground. Um, and, and so I love that aspect of ecology. But I also like thinking about, um, for example, a nursing log, Um when a, when, a, when a tree falls in the forest, it opens up the upper canopy and it falls on the ground and it becomes this decaying um, armature for more growth. And, and, and I think there are many lessons that embedded in that process of in, in the act of death of something, the decay of something is, is the privilege of, of new life. And, and, you know, maybe in some ways, um, although the, really sustainable, when we build um, with such a long-term commitment, maybe there's something lost in that. And maybe a building should have 
um, an age, uh, the bar, what, what we should pursue as far as the length of life of a building, maybe should be less so that we actually allow it to decay and become an urban forested area, um, a, a small park, um, and that there's financial incentives to someone after so many years to let it go and, and let it contribute to the quality of natural light in an urban setting, the quality of air in a natural setting, uh, a safe place if handled correctly for families and kids to play for levels of engagement. Um, I think it's what, what a, I mean, something is significantly lost when you're relegated to um, 24 7 365 urban conditions that are all about hardscape and and lack lack the ability to reach down and pick up the soil or even put a, a blade of grass in your mouth or or whatever touch it um, engage with it when you say buildings should have an age uh, such a statement seems to contrast our understanding of lasting sustainability and architecture so what what is the benefit of assigning a definite lifespan for those structures? Additionally, I think we should um, think about uh, a diversity in in the age of buildings. Should we should we think of an urban context in terms of buildings that are designed with materials uh, of of great longevity, of permanence, and in contrast. Um, design buildings with materials and systems that have um, a far shorter life to them. And then some that reside somewhere in between. And so um, similar to uh, a natural forest, um, maybe some that die early in their life cycle, they are acting similar to a nursing log, where in their decay or degradation, uh, they are contributing meaningfully to um, maybe small urban parks, um, maybe providing in some way similar to um, the natural world, nutrients um, to community, um, to places, but I'm not suggesting that all buildings are designed with such a, a short lifetime. I'm, I'm suggesting that uh, maybe embedded in that, that, that range of buildings that are designed for literally 500 to 1,000 plus years and buildings that are literally designed maybe for 10 to 20 years, that we should explore the way this relationship, and some in between, of course, maybe they're 50 to 100 or 200, that maybe in this relationship of, of, of variety or, or opportunities for cities to evolve in response to changing conditions. For example, um, the pandemic has presented needs that our urban context does not presently or did not presently contemplate for outdoor space. Um, this strategy may um, provide for a higher degree of flexibility for unanticipated shifts 
in, in climate change, pandemics of the future, um, uh, programmatic changes, etc. Just a short break for a PSA from Resight. We have loved getting to create this podcast, and we hope you've been enjoying it just as much. Reaching a new audience on a new platform with the same mission, elevating people and ideas to improve the urban environment in the middle of a pandemic has been what we feel to be an important action. Also important to us is that these ideas remain accessible and free. As a nonprofit, we are only able to produce this podcast thanks to the generous support of the City of Prague, the Czech Ministry of Culture, corporate sponsors, private philanthropists, and our network of passionate architecture and city lovers like you. If you would like to support us as a patron, sponsor, or strategic partner, please get in touch at podcast at resite.org. Your support allows us to continue sharing ideas to inspire more livable, lovable cities. Thank you so much for listening, and let's jump back into our conversation with Trey. So another thing you know you you brought up is is human engagement. Um, how do you how do you see all of this fitting into that? Well, I am deeply moved when someone um, grants us the privilege of a level of emotional engagement. Right? They're emotionally available, and. Um, and, and I, I think we have a responsibility as designers to think about that. And, um, you know, when we grant someone access to who we are intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, um, it's a real privilege. And, a, and if we're responsible with that, we, we develop a level of security that allows us to express in a more deeper and more meaningful way who we are. And that's what an important aspect of life is who, who am I? What do I represent? What are my convictions? Right. And so for me, I think that buildings should, should possess a variety of spaces and, and, and should be designed to encourage uh, meaningful human to human engagement, uh, human to the natural world engagement, and, and even spaces for uh, self-reflection. Right. Because because if a place is about reflection and memory in relationship to a space about action, um, those are complementary and and they both reciprocally elevate um, life's experiences and the quality of life. I can really identify with that as somebody who, you know, I feel very sensitive to my surroundings and spaces and kind of feel like having that supportive environment is super important for me even. And I can imagine, you know, it's, it's probably a quite universal thing to feel. So. Well, I think that that's one of the beauties that's come out of the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's reminded us to think outside of ourselves, to think about our community, our neighbors, our family, and, and question how we contribute to others. And the, as we all know, the beauty of that is how much it, gives back to oneself. But I think architecture has a real role in that and that we should think about that. And I think the way architecture is expressed, its spatial quality, um, its engagement with the natural world, the uh, environmental uniqueness of place uh, is significant in either elevating 
are competing with human engagement. Absolutely. Do, do you have any examples of that maybe that you could share in your work or just in general? Yeah. Well, for me personally, um, I struggle with an overabundance of decor. Um, um, I think uh, decoration, whether it's objects in a space or applied without any meaningful performative contributions, um, devalues the human presence. And I think we should privilege life and privilege human presence um, in our spaces. And um, I question when someone feels the need, and this is for me personally, to fill a space with stuff. Um, um, Because I think now more than ever, it's important to, to not only listen, but to be truly present. Um, and that seems to be more and more rare these days. Um, is someone really present? Is their phone aside? Um, and, and are they really listening and do they care? Um, and I think space, spatial um, definition, expression, materiality, um, mechanical systems, are the mechanical systems humming? Are the lights buzzing? Is there a server running? Um, Do you hear the computer? I think all those things are important to either competing with or contributing to rich and meaningful human engagement. It's interesting what you're saying, because lately I, I felt the same. I kind of tend to do the thing same with just like things and decoration, but I've realized like it's it's so much for my brain to process that I have all these things around me and that that's actually like just taking away my energy more or less. And I, I love what you're saying. And that really puts some of your work even more in, into context um, for me. Um, you have this um, one re- really beautiful chapel you designed in Louisiana. It's the... And forgive me, I'm going to say it wrong. Saint-Jean-Vianney? Saint-Jean-Vianney, Saint yeah. Vianney. One of our earliest projects, yeah. Yeah, so I I was actually speaking with like our intern, or my intern at the moment, we were having a discussion about this and he, he brought up some really interesting points like of, you know, this, um, like how your work seems kind of devoid of excess ornamentation versus kind of the more traditional Catholic uh, art of overwhelming, let's say. Um, and I think that's really, you know, when you put it in those terms, it's really beautiful. I, I think it's interesting how um, you applied that to, to you know, something so tr- traditionally ornamental. Um, so do, would you say this is like a theme throughout your work? I, th- I think it is. Um... I, th- I think it's fair to say we privilege life, we privilege human presence. And, and for us, um, there is, some would say a lack of color, but I would argue that there's pigmentation, uh, a variety of pigmentation in the pouring of cast in place concrete. And if you choose to stop and look, um, there's almost a skin-like quality to the way concrete hydrates. And, and to me, there's a beauty in that. And, and furthermore, there's a beauty in that, that the human being, the occupants um, bring the color. Um, and I, 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 I like thinking about that, that someone's, um, someone's life's experiences and choices have affected 
their physical presence as a reflection of their journey and how that um, plays in relationship to the canvas that the building is. I love this metaphor of a canvas. So then how, how would that apply to you? What what sort of experiences and, and influences have affected your canvas? Wow, that's an interesting question. I, I, I realize this of recent, that I'm in search of places that are of quiet reflection. Um, and it's not that I think of myself as this um, religious person, but I yearn for... Um, places and time where um, I, I am very much aware of the anxiety I feel in certain spaces and places. And I am very much aware of when I'm in spaces or places where my anxiety is reduced or eliminated. And I'm very much aware of the way I think and the things I see and and important, more importantly, the things I feel um, about life and others when I'm in those places. And so, um, but at the same time, I don't want to control life. I, I want to embed myself in experiences that, that have a high degree of unpredictability. Um, and, and, and that's found in the art that I collect. For example, I, I, I love the Raku family's tea bowls in Japan or Shiro Tutsumera's tea bowls in Japan because the artist there retrieves from the soil, the clay, a high a soil of a high clay content, and he shapes it. But he has such a decency, such a humility that he, he gifts the clay to the kiln, to the fire, and he allows the kiln to take the shaped clay and elevate it to a far more beautiful place. And so he, he is very much aware that although he may have been given talents, that the creation of beauty is far beyond his hands. And I think that we should think of architecture in those terms. And that's why I'm hopeful that the architect is gone and that, and that we've become a profession of uh, an elevated level of huma- humility, and that we believe that um, maybe building is creating um, a framework to make some of the decisions, but not all of the decisions. And you might say, "Well, how? Well, let's say we were going to we were going to build a poured-in-place concrete building. Instead of the forms being so engineered where they don't move, the formwork is attached." to each other through a series of hinges, pivots, uh, rollers, uh, devices that allow the process of pumping concrete into it to have a conversation with the formwork. And the formwork moves in a way that results in a far more beautiful expression, a far more interesting internal space. And then it hydrates unique to that form, right? Because of its relationship to the sun and those atmospheric conditions. And so for me, it's, there's tremendous integrity and maturity, wisdom in, in letting go and trusting. You spoke in, I think, another lecture about letting, letting go of one's narcissism. Yeah. Um, and yeah. in that same kind of context of 
uh, the clay in the kiln. Um, but I was just curious of maybe how yeah. that plays out in some of your your projects. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And I, and so as a young architect, I wanted to control the engineers. I wanted in some ways to control the client. I wanted to control the conversation, the dialogue on every level. And that's really ridiculous and terribly immature, right? And And actually disrespectful. And so I think moving to a place where you're no longer threatened by the individual voices of all collaborators, but you find embedded in them um, life's experience in each contributor that is important to the conversation. And and the beauty of that, once again, is that unpredictability. You never know where the conversation's going to start, and you're not even sure where how it's going to evolve. But you know that it's going to be authentic and true and, and serve as memory for the uniqueness of that group of collaborators. And, and so I, I, that's what I find interesting is arriving at the office and, and not controlling things, but, but being granted the privilege of participating in conversations that may take us to a very different place. In recent years, it's taken us to a place where are we architects? Yes. Do we love and are we passionate about architecture? Yes. But we realized at a certain point that more importantly, our role is to be humanitarians. And humanitarians that have chosen the profession of the material world in this um, natural world and questioning what the role of the architect is and believing truly that we are in the early years of defining what an architect is because it I, I, I think like all professions, there's just an inherent beauty in the way we think and see the world. And so I think we need to move towards out, outside of these silos and and really um, in the most radical way, challenge not only what the architect does, how the architect contributes, um, but the definition of beauty. And because I think we're born into a world of, of defining beauty as the physical. And you quickly realize that beauty, as we define it, should be about dignity and respect and empathy and compassion. And physical beauty without a dignified process of creating lacks beauty. Um, Beauty has to be far more. And and it's my personal opinion that um, if there's one thing that can save the planet, it's how we redefine beauty. Um, and, and beauty is the we, right? Not the me. Um, it's, it's thinking of others in our community and how we can contribute. And so uh, that's just a number of ways of how we are challenging what the role of the architect is um, and how we think. Um, hopeful that embedded in those conversations is um, potentially a far different way of thinking um, about space, about relationships, about expression, and about, about building on this blue ball, right? 
you know, I really like what you're saying about this Stark Attack um, and how you are approaching, um, you know, working with your team, you know, you get what you put in. I imagine this translates really well to um, this piece architecture that you, um, seems to be a p- pillar of your firm. Am I right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And just to kind of finish up that thought of the Stark Attack, isn't it very disingenuous to suggest one person? Um, is this brilliant thought leader and responsible for this piece when so many people at every level in the office, consultants around the world, and and as important or maybe more importantly, the client um, and community are contributing to this. So, yeah. So as it relates to peace architecture. Is that a job, um, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, well, but I think it's appropriate. So a little... To back up a few years, for some reason, I've spent the past 25 plus years traveling the state of Louisiana, uh, visiting um, historic buildings, the earliest ones constructed of bousillage. And and I think it's because they are such, they're beautiful examples of rootedness, right? Extracting uh, timbers from the site, the cypress trees, um, the, the clay horsehair and moss from the site, and then the cedar trees on the site, the cedar shakes for the roof. And you feel that, right? You feel the materiality of place organized in a way that creates um, a, a level of conditioned space that feels so connected to place, both internal and external. Um, but as I traveled the state, and, and there are many plantations in Louisiana, um, that in a physical way, devoid of the culture and the atrocities that took place on the plantations are beautifully proportioned. They're beautifully rooted and created from clay and kilns that baked the bricks and and created these places where uh, these oak alleys uh, take you through this, on this axial condition to this place of arrival and uh, they feel very much connected to the landscape. And and that's always been an inner struggle with me. How can, as a person that, that hopefully appreciates the physical, um, elevate that to a place of, of, of contributing, knowing the horrific atrocities that took place? And the more you study these, you realize that some of the early paint colors were blue and that was indigo. And you think of indigo as a crop of oppression. And and so you start connecting all of these dots and you realize that we probably practice architecture, the process of practicing architecture, not only the physical expression that is so rooted in those days of oppression, of of a small group controlling, manipulating, shackling so many. And, and so how can you not question if, if the birth of our country was not born out of that kind of level of greed, of material possessions and wealth, whether it was wealth of land, of money, or of artifacts, um, how would we... Ha- have evolved? Would our cities be different? Would our neighborhoods be different? Would we think about uh, the threshold of arrival 
and the sequence of progressing onto a site differently. Um, and I have to believe that if we can find a way to go back and interrogate and truly with deep conviction and honesty, unearth as archaeologist the truth and and commit to accepting the truth, telling the truth, and for both um, for both the perpetrated and the perpetrator, right? Um, but to just with dignity recognize this period in history and ask ourselves to go back and 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 hopefully almost begin again, not in an attempt to erase that history, but to acknowledge it and maybe just maybe embedded in that truthful confrontation is a way of thinking of place and space that um, leaves each of us feeling elevated and um, in, a, in, a, in a far more impactful way. And so I'm interested in that. And I believe that's not only the, the physical properties of place and architecture, but it's our role as architects to, to now think about crops that bring peace. We recently flew in um, Abubakar Fofana from uh, Bamako, Mali, and he brought seeds of, of indigo, and we're planting them on a property we purchased. And, and he, he speaks to 6,000 years ago, indigo was a, a, a crop that was used for medicinal purposes. So was it in, in West Africa. And so now in Southern Louisiana, a crop that's thought of as oppressive is now a crop for healing. You can rub an indigo leaf on you if you have a cut and it contributes to uh, the healing of, of, of the cut. You can put a few leaves in your mouth and they contribute to the healing of a toothache. And so for me, it's once again, the soil providing conditions for, so we heal the soil. It provides us with plant life that can, can heal the body. And hopefully the act of, of, of all races growing indigo, um, cutting indigo, using it for medicinal purposes and maybe for the dyeing purposes, beautiful indigo dyed pieces are just magical. Um, maybe these are all ways of bringing communities together to deal with healing the community. Um, and for me, they once again go back to the soil and the importance of soil. So maybe what role then do you see architecture playing in when it comes to reparations and this institutional reform, like in maybe more concrete ways? Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, we have to define reparations and reparations come in many forms. Yes, most associated immediately with um, money being transferred from uh, the perpetrator to the people that were um, being were perpetrated. Um, but there's, you know, the truth is marginalized people want, I think, first and foremost, acknowledgement of what took place. And, 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 and for that truth to be known, acknowledged, and that, that truth told, 
that story told. It documented in history, as opposed to another narrative, um, somewhat misleadingly, disingenuously um, recording history. And that does a disservice to all of us, right? And it's so ir irresponsible to our kids and grandkids. So I think the truth must be established. Um, but I also think we need to make connections between um, the enslaved people of the past and modern day um, uh, slavery, um, or what we refer to as is the plantation to prison pipeline. And, and understanding all these connections. And, and, and I think it's fair to say that most of us, beginning with me, are just simply unaware of the things we do and say that are terribly insensitive. And, and so I have to believe that in confronting the truth and speaking the truth, we will think differently as architects. And so I care to know these things. I want to know these things. I want at the end of my life to know that I gave time and energy to exploring the truth and it participating in defining who I am and what I, um, how I allocate my time and my talents and contribute to community. And um, I can't imagine um, not confronting that or, or fearing that because um, if you don't know, um, I'm not sure you can be held accountable, but you can be held ac accountable for not wanting to know and not seeking out the truth. 100%. You know, maybe how do you see some of, you know, regenerating these places that really have some of the darker history of slavery, um, you know, like plantations where there it's part of what has given Louisiana its identity, but it also comes with that baggage. Could you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I, well, first of all, what's happened is um, so many of these places are, I think, um, at times in our history, we've been misguided in that we turn these into uh, venues for celebration of weddings and graduation, and they become uh, bed and breakfast facilities. And and that's a form of being right disrespectful and insensitive. Um, I find um, one precedent really powerful, Drayton Hall, I think it's in South Carolina. And this historic kind of Palladian and expression building was restored to its historic uh, originality. And it's left open, it, meaning it's just a void space. And so for to me, it's, 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 it's empty. And so it's once again, like that tea bowl. It's about stillness and quiet and this almost inner universe um, that can serve as just um, uh, an uninhabited vessel um, that, that allows the element of mystery to embody this place um, and, and someone to enter and, and not um, find themselves entertained by decor or, or artifacts 
that are about expressions of wealth, but more natural light and and that place and maybe think about um, what atrocities took place here and reflect on those and serve in a contributing ways to our communities as um, a really a really authentic representation of what it was and what took place, as opposed to saying, I lack the strength to confront our past. And so I'm going to decorate it. I'm going to populate it. I'm going to activate it in a way that allows me to not deal with that, um, which I find disingenu- disingenuous and not living an authentic life. Um, and so, as I've said before, all these things, I believe, have the potential when confronted to change the trajectory of architecture, of space, of relationships, of human engagement. It's, it's, it's simply for me in my life to say, what, 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 what took place? I want to know. I want to understand it. And, and more importantly, I, I want to understand the impact that has today on all marginalized people. The indigenous people, the African Americans, uh, people throughout the globe. Um, um, because the truth is, um, I lead a beautiful life, and and but it 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 going back, it really lacks beauty. If if it's a, a life isolated from from so many of the historical events that are a part of our everyday fabric and culture, um, so I. I, I seek to understand that. Seems like you are. And I, I think authenticity is a word I would definitely use to describe you, Trey. Um, and I, I think it's a beautiful way of putting it. So um, I guess on the same note of, you know, authenticity, how do you how do you p- apply that to your architecture, making sure a place is authentic to its locality or, you know, community? Yeah. So for us, we start with the watershed. I want to know what the watershed was. I want to know the soil type. I want to know the flora. I want to know the fauna. I want to know the topography. I want to know at the scale of soil, dirt. I want to know, for example, if it's in a part of Louisiana that's the low soils, that they are stable in a, uh, sectionally speaking, in a vertical condition, least stable in a horizontal or a slope condition because these particles of soil have a coating of clay on them. And so when they're in a horizontal or a slope section, the their surface area exposed to precipitation and they lack, they lose their frictional qualities. And so they, um, you experience uh, degradation of the soils or exhaustion of the soils or runoff. And, and so, um, and then I love thinking about um, how they are suspended in, in water and move on rivers, tributaries, um, distributaries. And and then what are the tree species that come, grow out of that soil? And so that's the most available species type, right? And, and how the forest in those places, that soil has resulted in um, a variety, biodiversity, and how a building can... Um, can have a dialogue with biodiversity where it is not singular and that's where we struggle how how can it be authentic and but have that kind of complexity 
because, right, there's tremendous beauty in the complexity of natural systems and its unpredictability, and which is kind of like our urban cities. That's the beauty of urban. There's so much diversity, right, um, which is real richness. And so, uh, you know, our search is, is not complete. In fact, it's early. Um, I, I just I wish I would have come to this point about many years back. Um, but I think embedded in, in, in that is a way of thinking that has the potential to result in um, a profession that, um, that contributes to uh, our personal lives, our families' lives, and our communities um, in ways that touch us deep within that are unimaginable now. And I believe we'll get there. My thinking is, if, if we know we're going to get there, let's kind of accelerate this thing and, 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 and accept that it's not in, it doesn't threaten us. Um, it elevates us all. And, and I'm, I just want to elevate it and expedite things as much as we can while I'm here. How do you see architecture solving that problem? Yeah. Well, you know, I think we've moved from some degrees of segregation to degrees of integration. But um, for me, integration is at the level of, um, in some aspects of my life, is predominantly as it relates to work, as it mm -hmm. relates to sporting events, as it relates to travel. But it really doesn't relate to and at times I live down, I, I do live downtown in New Orleans. It, it, it relates somewhat to neighborhood, but it, how powerful would it be if, if there was in New Orleans, um, greater diversity and, and all aspects of life, um, you know, because so often, and maybe this is my choices that I need to think about the, the restaurants are predominantly white, um, uh, walking downtown, it's predominantly white. And, and so I think that um, urban planning, city planning um, has to encourage people from, um, in New Orleans, Faubourgs, neighborhoods, mm -hmm. to, to cross those thresholds and move into other neighborhoods and become familiar with, with others. Uh, their unique culture, the way they see life, the way they celebrate life. And with that familiarity will come trust and hopefully a commitment to uh, engaging more and more daily. Um, and I have to believe our physical environment is significant in, in encouraging that kind of interaction. Yeah, it, it has to be. And I guess maybe the, the better question would have been, like, how can it be preventative or, or, or proactive instead of reactive? And I think they think you kind of got yeah. that. And you made this other, um, and I think it was a metaphor about kind of sacred spaces. And I think you were describing, or maybe the, the person you were talking to was describing actually like a football stadium as being the sacred space and this place where people connect. And, and to me, that seems like that kind of space where all walks of life, life can come and 
and maybe see each other in more of those human terms. I would love for you to talk more about that. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a that's a great example. So we're interviewing early in my career. We um, we were selected for the LSU football stadium edition, which was an incredible client. And and so um, years later, we were interviewing for Auburn University's um, football stadium. And and the athletic director at the time was a um, a wonderful man by the name of uh, David Housel. And we're in this presentation room and about five minutes into the interview, I'm speaking, he stops me and he says, um, uh, Trey, I'm fascinated by the way you think and, and the way you speak of architecture. Um, and, and he said, I, I read once that you designed um, a church. I said, yes, sir. And, and he said, uh, can you tell me what it's like designing a church uh, for a community? And I said, well, you know, I mean, first, the most important threshold is your, your, your private dwelling when you choose to leave your private um, place and you cross that threshold to the, to the public realm and you drive or walk to church. And, and then there's the forecourt and, and you arrive there and you meet others that are in the community. And then you cross that first threshold and, and, and I said, and you arrive in the space and he goes, well, tell me more about that entry portal. And, and, and this went on Alex for 20 or 30 minutes. And I'm thinking, my goodness, I mean, I love designing sacred spaces, but um, I wanted to really master plan this campus stadium. And, and then he spoke to, he said, so then he said, when you design this church and this article spoke of equality and bringing dignity to each member of the congregation, um, tell me about that. And I said, well, I don't think there should be varying degrees of participation that we should, every seat should be volumetrically in, in a singular space. Um, and he said, well, speak to me about that. And so we did. And at that point I'd given up on, 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 on the potential selection as an architect for the uh, stadium. And then Alex, he walked to the window and this was 35, 40 minutes into it. And he pulled the curtain back and there was Jordan Hare Stadium, their campus stadium. And he said, there's my cathedral. And he said, he said that um, that arrival sequence, entry, and people gathering of equality around uh, the sacred table in a church um, or the sacred field is precisely the same. And so your understanding of that commitment to community is very much a part of sporting events. And, it, you know, obviously I was um, taken back by his brilliance to make such a, a beautiful connection between those two distinct um, building types. Um, but, but and, and to kind of share more um, about that, then the conversation we had off record, so to speak, was our both of our intrigue with how someone can belong to the Republican Party or someone can belong to the Democratic Party and they can sit next to each other in the same color rooting for the same team and that which separates them in the most unpleasant way um, is dissolved 
and they're so united against a common enemy, right? The other team. Um, and so, you know, all those experiences leave you thinking about um, how architecture can bring us together. And, and I think that's what, where we've arrived in this conversation. Here, a, a collegiate stadium in the SEC takes people of all colors and of race, ethnicity, cultural backgrounds, political persuasions. And if you're rooting for the same team, you are unified and you embrace each other against the other um, in the most um, profound and at times horrific ways. But um, it speaks to the architecture, right? On one level. You know, I would love to hear more about just how spirituality plays into your work in general. Um, if you if you have yeah. some more to share on that. And yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, I think that I mean, all our lives experiences are one thread or another, right? And 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 some are beautifully contribute um, in some ways to who we are, and some challenge us to think about how that experience um, contributes beautifully to who I am and what I represent and how I can contribute. And, and I'll share something very personal. When I was 30, my older sister of 15 months, um, who was a, a beautiful, healthy young woman, um, uh, uh, discovered she had cancer. And she was engaged and she married two weeks later and she died two weeks after that. So within 29 days at the age of 31, um, I lost a very close friend and, and, and sibling. And, and so, you know, the choice becomes um, through all of that pain um, of loss of, of what are my options, right? And your, and your options um, or this can destroy me. Um, this can result in um, uh, a person that becomes introverted and fearful of life or a person that chooses to celebrate the beauty of life. And, um, and, and I think it's important to make those choices. And, you know, we all have these threads of experiences through life that form a unique tapestry of who we are. And, and I think embedded in those is, is the formation of who we are and what we believe and how we contribute and how we contribute to others. And, 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 and it's not that I would ever, um, seek to experience those days again. But I have to tell you at this point in my life, reflecting back, um, there is a tremendous beauty in that loss that um, may some may find problematic to understand, but that is worthy of celebration because it contributed in so many ways to who I am 
that I should, I, I mean, I, I, I think uh, requires that I become um, a steward um, in, in many ways. And that is um, stewardship's important, right? We don't talk a lot about it, but we have to be stewards of the land, a land ethic, stewards of the soil, stewards of our community stewards of our relationships um and 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 so i think all those are born out of life's experiences and 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 i try to give adequate time to thinking about all those experiences and the importance of those and 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 how that um contributes to uh, human engagement relationships um at all levels. I'm so sorry to hear for your loss, but, and I, I definitely can understand how that would shape you. Um, very formative. Yeah. But I think it's important to hold space for those sort of like conflicting uh, emotions, let's say. And I think that's kind of the, the complexity of life that you were, you were talking about. And I can resonate that with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, as I said, I find, um, tremendous beauty embedded in these things, and and it's once again it's it's a reminder that um, of the importance of celebrating life at all scales every day, right? And that once again reminds us of all of life embedded in healthy soils, and and the importance of 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 being stewards of the soil, or stewards of the planet and our neighborhoods. And um, I'm confident that that the trajectory of our planet and species will be far greater um, when we when we privilege um, all forms of life. I 100% agree. Just so poetic, everything you've said today and, and shared with us. I'm super grateful. Um, so maybe is there anything else to say that we didn't cover? You feel like it's important to add to this conversation? Yeah, um, I can't think of anything. Can you? Is there something else we should? I oh, yeah. I think I've given you my all. You, it's <laughs> you've given me so much, and I'm so grateful. So thank you so much. I'm really excited about this conversation. Well, thank you, Alex. Um, it's it's um, been my privilege, and um, yeah. To be continued, right? Uh, yes, I like that. To be continued. And the pleasure is truly all mine. So yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. Take care. Have a good evening. You as well. Bye. Yep. Bye-bye. That was Trey Trahan, founder of Trahan Architects. Trey's emphasis on how architecture brings us together, not just with one another, but in communion with the natural world, is an idea worth contemplating. Through his work, he makes plain that architecture should foster equality and equal participation for those who enter the structures and the landscapes on which they are set. His role as an architect is not delimited by the boundaries of blueprints. Stewardship, he says, of the land, of the soil, of our communities, of our relationships, is paramount 
if we are to heal the wounds inflicted by our past and current divisions. For Trey, it is incumbent upon those within and without his profession to engage as stewards of their built and natural environments. For we must press forward together to really create an architecture of healing. Be sure to catch our published transcripts, complete with images and visuals, along with all other reference works in this show's description. Thanks for joining us today. Design in the City is a Recite production, and Recite is a global nonprofit connecting people and ideas to improve the urban environment. This episode was directed and produced by myself, Alexandra Siebenthal, and Nicholas Sellers, with the support of Martin Berry, Radkan Jachkova, as well as Nano Energies and the Czech Ministry of Culture. It was recorded in the Recite office in Prague and edited by Little Big Studio. Thank you.